wind, but sunshiny. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, on a personal note, I've got a situation in Colorado with one of my sons, and then the other one's come over and wants me to do something for him. So I'll probably leave for Colorado uh, sometime tomorrow and uh, try to take care of some things over there. My daughter-in-law, who's paraplegic, is home now. They gave her all the time they could to rehab, and she's still a long, long, long way from being normal. Uh, she can finally swallow food if it's pureed for her and move her arms and legs a bit and put some weight and sit up a little bit, but that's really about it. Even her talking is still somewhat limited. And he's having to redo the house almost completely to put bars and things here and there and helps for her. So uh, I'm going to spend a few days over there and try to help the situation. So uh, if you need any anointing or anything, uh, Nelson will be around. Um, and, of course, I'll have my cell phone with me if you need to uh, contact me for any reason, whatever. So I'll be in, be in cell range most of the time, at least. Well, let's get back to Matthew today. <clears throat> we came down to chapter 5, verse 34. Well, 33, actually. Again, he's explaining to us the conditions of the new covenant and what he expects of us in our thinking and our words and in our actions. I was just musing a little bit this morning that if uh, if you were going to have somebody said, I'm going to take the Bible away from you, I'll let you preserve three chapters. You can have three chapters. Which three would you choose? I mean, obviously we're not to take away from or add to the Bible, but I'm saying if someone was going to take your Bible away from you and said, I'll allow you to keep three chapters, what would you keep? I think I'd keep Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what I would keep. Uh, because here he explains in a very short amount of time pretty much everything he expects of us mentally and spiritually and physically as well. So he just lays it all out to them. And the rest of the Bible basically is there to uh, emphasize this, to remind us of it, to put it in different words in different ways. But he lays out pretty much the whole picture here. And uh, people think of the Sermon on the Mount as a nice, gentle, wonderful thing. But when you give some serious considerations to the things he's telling us here, there's not any of this that's easy. It's all very, very difficult. So he continues with that, saying, Again, you have heard, in verse 33, that it has been said by them of old time that you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform to the eternal your oaths. Meaning, of course, we shouldn't swear things to other people but give God our oaths, and whatever we promise Him, we keep. But He's going to uh, tighten this up here. He says, But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. 
So what are you going to swear by? The greatest power in the universe, of course, is God. And he says, don't use my name when you make a promise. There's another scripture I, I didn't, uh, I won't turn to where he says, we make our plans and we don't know whether we can fulfill our plans or not. We might not live another day, but I think, is it James that says that? How we make a plan, we'll go to such and such a city and we'll do deals and we'll uh, get gain and so on. He says, no. Nah. Don't count on it. You may not live till tomorrow. I said, I'm planning to go to Colorado tomorrow. I don't know whether I'll live till tomorrow or not. You know, I'm not going to swear I'm going to Colorado. I may say I plan to go if all things work. Or as some people used to say, God willing and the creek don't rise. You know, so sometimes it rains in the night and the creek rises and you can't get across it. I've been there myself in the past. So, we have to be careful what we say or what we promise, because sometimes things come up that change our plans. Uh, he's inferring there that death could change your plan, but there are other things that change our plans too, you know, uh, things come up that we have to consider. So he says, don't use my name if you're going to make promises. Uh, Neither shall you swear by your head, but you, you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, you may have some black ones that turn white, but you didn't do it. Maybe your mate did it. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you can't change those things. Well, I guess with modern dyes, you can change a lot of things, but that's not reality. That's fake. That's false. And we really shouldn't go there uh, because... When God designed us, He designed us to go through a life cycle starting as a baby and ending as old if we live out our time. And He has set it up so that as we age, we get bald, we get droopy, we get slack muscles, we get white hair instead of black or blonde or red hair. Uh, that's just part of the aging process. So he says that we should respect the hoary head, that one that is older and is beginning to turn white or is white, uh, hoary like hoarfrost, like frost on the car windshield. It's white. That's what he's talking about. So what do we do in modern times? We try to disguise that in every way we can because we want to look young instead of aging gracefully thankful that God gives us more time, and hopefully, as we've lived our life, we have learned some things, and younger people, if they're in the right attitude, will look to an older person and say, what have you learned that I need to know? You know, you've been here longer than I have. Uh, got any tips? <laughs> got anything that you learned the hard way that maybe you could pass along to me? But young people don't generally want to do that because they would like to think that they know it all by the time they're 14 or 20 or whatever. It's, it's only as you get a little bit older you begin to realize you really don't know it all. And then you start to forget it all. <laughs> 
It's a life cycle. We need to accept it. So he says, don't swear by your hair. You don't know whether it's going to be white, black, gone, or what by tomorrow. You just don't know. And you're limited. That's really what he's saying here. You're very limited in what you can promise. If you promise something, you need to be sure to try to fulfill it the best you can. And if things are out of your control or beyond your control or other information comes along that changes it or the creek rises or whatever, you might not be able to do what you say. So we need to be very careful that we don't make promises we can't keep because it happens that sometimes you can't. I'll meet you tomorrow at noon. Well, if you have a heart attack at midnight, no, you're not. It's, it's all over. You're done. So instead of making all kinds of vows or swearing, uh, that's stronger than saying yes or no, uh, because people, you, you can say yes and somebody will say, well, will you swear to that? You've heard that. They, they want something more than just your word. They want you to swear. And sometimes they use God's name. By God I will, they'll say. Well, that's way beyond what Christ wants us to do. So what is it supposed to be then? There's an acronym called K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, don't keep it Stupid, simple, but you are the stupid one, so keep it simple, is what it means. Let your communication be yes, yes, or no, no. Whatever is more than these come of evil. If we are good to our word, we say yes, we mean yes. We say no, we mean no. And there are still people around who will honor that. There are people around who, if they make a deal with you on something, it's as good to them as anything. They don't need it on paper because they mean what they say. And you have others who, it doesn't matter how many lawyers draw up the paper, they'll find a way around it anyway. So he wants us to keep our communication very simple and very straightforward and intend to do what we say or don't do what we say. And then if something comes along to change it, you haven't gone through all kinds of uh, problems trying to make something happen that isn't going to happen. So let your word be good. We all have to work on that one. I, people, they hedge their bets a lot. Somebody tells me, well, I'll try to do that. I figure, well, that's probably not going to happen if, I, if they're just going to try. Now, if they say in an emphatic way, I will do that, then I kind of expect that it's going to happen. But when they say, I'll try... They're leaving themselves maneuver room is what they're doing. A chance to go sideways or back out or not do it in the first place. They don't want to tell you no. 
but they may not intend to in any case, so they'll say, I'll try. And that kind of covers them in their mind if they don't do what they say they'll try to do. So they're not being forthright, they're not being honest with you, and they're not being honest with themselves when they say, I'll try to do that. Now, if they say, I will do that, if at all possible, then that's a positive statement of intent, not hedging your way. And he's saying that here. It's either yes or it's no. It's not, ah, well, I'll, I'll try. I'll work on that. Maybe. All you're saying is maybe. And nobody can take that home with them and believe that maybe is going to happen. What if God said, you obey me and you serve me. I'll try to reward you. I'll try to put you in my kingdom. He doesn't put it that way. He says, you serve me, follow me, overcome and grow, and you will be part of my kingdom. It's a promise. Now, it's a conditional promise because we need to perform certain things, but it's a promise that if we perform those conditions, it will happen. You can count on it. Why do you want to work for something that you can't count on? Well, God, when he says yes or he says no, he means business. And all we have to do is do our part and it will happen. That's why we can move forward with confidence, knowing that God is not going to hedge on his word or sort of give it a halfway try. No, he'll do it. He'll do it. All his promises are sure. 38, you've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a lot of people operate on that basis. Now, maybe we don't literally put eyes out and knock teeth out today, but it's the principle that's there. If you do something to me, I'm going to get even with you. And that's not the way God wants us to operate. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We don't have to get even with someone if they do something bad to us. We're not obligated to. And in fact, we're instructed not to. If they did it to you, okay, they did it. But don't fight back. Don't try to get even with them. Don't try to extract a pound of flesh or an eye or a tooth from them. Just forgive them. Go on about your business. You know, you can use an awful lot of energy and negative emotion trying to get even with somebody for something they did to you. And it doesn't even have to be major. It can be a social slight, or they forgot to say hello, or they didn't say it as friendly as you thought they ought have, or, or whatever. They might have had a headache. Uh, they might have been happy to see you, but their head hurt so bad they couldn't express it the way they might want to. A lot of factors come into things that we see, and a lot of times we just simply read people wrong. They're not thinking what we think they're thinking at all. But there is in us this desire to get even, some way. 
you'll pay. I use that jokingly sometimes. That's going to cost you, you know. Uh, and that's all it is, is a joke. But uh, that can be our way of thinking as well. We have to be careful of that. I say to you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is getting pretty deep here. Uh, <laughs> you know, somebody swings at you. It's innate within us to want to swing back. It's just there. Uh, don't resist evil. If they want to do evil to you, hey, go for it. Uh, I'm not going to resist. Now, this is in our daily thinking that way. Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't protect our families, because he says in another place, if you had known what time the robber was going to break into your house, you would have stopped him. So it's okay to stop someone who's trying to uh, loot your house or rape your wife or kidnap your children or do you harm in that way? If it's an overt act, he says, you can defend yourself in those circumstances. So it's a matter here of wisdom. What do you do under this circumstance? What do you do under that circumstance? These scriptures do not contradict each other. They add to each other. We should not go through life according to this with a chip on our shoulder. So if you do something to me, I'll get you back. There are people who live their life that way. Uh, street gangs, for instance. You do something to my gang, we're going to come over to your side and kill somebody. Like fussing and feuding and a fighting, that song from long ago. Don't like your ornery neighbors down by the creek, you'll be plumb out of neighbors next week. Uh, you know, we're, we shoot each other back and forth. So, no, we're not to have that attitude. Our attitude is we're trying to get along with everybody as best we can. That's what he tells us. So far as is possible, live peaceably with everyone. So that should be the attitude we go into each day with, is getting along. And if they mistreat us, misuse us, say something nasty or sarcastic to us or whatever... We don't let it get to our ego or to our vanity. We don't resist. It's, oh, okay, that's the way you feel. Hope you have a good day. Uh, <clears throat> but don't, don't let them ruin yours because of what they say or how they act. We need to be thinking on a spiritual level the way God thinks and not let them ruin our day. Or by that, I mean they somehow offend you, let's say, frustrate you. And then you think about it the rest of the day. Whose day does it ruin, yours or theirs? Well, yours, obviously, because you let it get to you. So he's saying don't resist it. Don't let it get to you. Just go on about your business. And don't try to get even with them. But if they're trying to rob your house or kill you, you can respond. That's a different situation. Just don't go through life with a chip on your shoulder trying to get even. Uh, 
because that puts you in a wrong frame of mind. Our ego, our vanity, and all that is involved. We're not to be offended by anything, are we? Neither are we to offend in any way. It's both ways. So, God says, do not be offended. No matter what, don't be offended. Anybody got that one totally under control yet? <laughs> no, that one we have to work on. And then, don't offend anybody. We don't have that one completely under control yet either. As a human being, uh, none of these things do we do perfectly, but we need to be working on them day by day. Not to let our ego and our vanity uh, put us into wrong attitudes. So he says, it's been said, get even. But I say, don't resist evil, but whosoever will smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, you're going to you say that to me, or you smack me alongside the head? Here's the other side. Go for it. Are we that mature yet? That's a tough one. That would be a tough one. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And if any man compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Now, that apparently was uh, a reference to uh, some of the soldiers in the area. Uh, they didn't want to carry all their heavy gear, so they see you and they'd say, carry my armor for a mile. God says, okay, take it too. Uh, give him more than he asked for. In other words, be willing to help, be willing to be used to some degree. Was Christ ever used in a wrong way? Oh my, over and over and over and over again. And he took it patiently. Well, so if they sue you at law, they want your coat, give them your cloak also. Uh, in other words, don't try to win at any cost. Don't try to do to them as they're doing to you. But, okay, you want that? Take it. Uh, we have to do that. There's one place here where somebody had not done what they said they would do. Uh, we're lying and cheating on hours and all kinds of things. And I thought about this and I thought, well, what should I do? How do I get that money out of them? I finally decided, well, he's claiming the house. Says he earned the house. I said, Take it. It's yours. You want the house? Take it. You didn't earn it. You're lying to me, but you can have it. I didn't know what else to do, so I did that. That was one time I think I did it right. We won't talk about other times. <laughs> but sometimes you have to give. Now, I'm not doing that with this property. I conceded probably too much already. I'm trying to be nice, trying to be so treat people right, even though they're lying and stealing and bearing false witness and idolatry and breaking all the laws, coveting, 
what is not theirs. But I look upon this not as my property or your property. I look upon it as God's property. And I believe God gave it to us. And if God gave it to us, I'm going to fight to keep what he gave. I don't want to let anybody take that away. Now, he's promised us a crown. If somebody says, I want your crown, are we supposed to give it to him? No, he says, don't let anyone take your crown. Don't allow that to happen. So, there's an attitude we need to have here of being willing to give, willing to be wronged, willing to be abused and mistreated, but there comes a point where the truly valuable things, like eternal life and something God has given as a gift, we don't turn loose of. We hang on to those things. Take not your spirit from me. Don't let anybody else take your spirit from me. You know, Satan, the devil, and his demons would love to take God's spirit from us if they can find any way to turn us against God. No, we don't go there. He's our enemy. How nice are we supposed to treat him? Well, I don't rail against him because we're told in here that we're not to do that in the book of Jude. But at the same time, I'm not going to give him any slack if I can help it because I don't want him to take away what God has given me. So a gift of God is one thing we defend to the death. That we defend to the death, what God has given us. Other things, hey, it's just material. Okay, uh, let them have it. They're going to be that way. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow of you, turn not you away. Be willing to give. Uh, they ask you for something. Uh, we don't have people ask us in life too often for too much. You know, they, they might say, I want that. Can I have it? Well, maybe you say, okay, that's what you want. I guess so. I'll give it to you. But most people don't ask for something uh, openly of us. They might try to steal it from us or come in the night and get it or whatever, but they're not going to just say, will you give me your car? Uh, that doesn't happen too often. And in some cases, you'd say, well, maybe so. Please take my car. <laughs> I jest in part, but at the same time, we need to be willing. That's, that's what he's saying. Be willing to give opportunity to what others desire. If we're to be a, a living servant, then we serve in a living way. And Christ was willing to give everything that he had, including his life, for you and me. And we do ask of him, don't we? And we hope for a positive response. Please forgive my sin through the blood that you shed for me. Now, we know the penalty of sin is death. And if we don't have his forgiveness and mercy and his grace, we're going to die and be gone forever. So we ask something pretty important of him. 
And he's always willing to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Now, don't sin anymore. Uh, Just because I forgive you once doesn't mean that you can now go sin all the more. So the grace may abound, is the way Paul put it. It makes God bigger. The more sins he forgives, the more important he is. That's no way to look at it. He wants to forgive our sins, but he doesn't want to forgive any more of them than he needs to. (laughs) He doesn't want us to keep committing them. So the attitude is of service, of helping. Uh, I use sometimes Samuel. He heard a voice in the night and said, Here am I. I'm here. What do you want? I didn't call you. Oh, I'm sorry. Goes back to bed. Sorry I waked you up. Goes back to sleep. Samuel, you calling me? Here I am. I'm ready. I'll wake up. What do you need? But it was God calling Samuel. It wasn't Eli. So, we need to be ready. And I think that's illustrated in the Song of Songs quite well where the bride-to-be was laying in bed, all covered up with her, snuggled up to her teddy bear. And here comes her husband-to-be knocking on the door. And Oh, wait a minute. Oh, my. I'm so warm, and it's nice in here. And Do I have to get up? Don't you have a key out there somewhere? <laughs> Can't you help yourself? And then she realizes, oh, wait a minute. I guess I'm being selfish here. By then he's gone. Then she runs through the street saying, oh boy, did I ever screw up trying to find him. Well, we don't want that to happen. We want to be responsive. We want to, whatever he wants of us, we should provide it. And whatever we want of each other, we should be trying to provide it because how we treat each other, he says, is how he will treat us. So he lays it on us. It's not just between you and me. It's between you and me and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to treat you exactly the way you treat them. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That one's tough. When you walk away from someone you had a conversation with, do you walk away saying, I want God to treat me just like I treated that person. Maybe we ought to train ourselves to say that after we talk to somebody. Is that the way I want to be treated by God? And if you're found lacking and you say, well, that's not exactly the way God wanted I'd want to be treated, then maybe you need to go back and treat that person a little differently than the way you did treat them. These are all growth areas. None of us are perfect in any of them because we're still human. But we need to be thinking about it and we need to be rehearsing it and working at it so that instead of nine times out of ten you have the wrong reaction, you need to get to the point where at least three times out of ten you give the right reaction or somewhere along the line. Be working at getting it right. Verse 43, you've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? 
But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now when it says pray for them, does it mean pray that God send a tornado through their house tonight and kill them? I don't think that's what he means. Uh, We should, when we have enemies, and we have some right here, we need to be praying that they be in the kingdom of God. We need to be praying that some of the things that they're doing, lying, stealing, that they stop and repent of that and don't miss out on the kingdom of God. You know, God loves every last human being who's ever been on the earth, dead or alive. He is going to deal with them in a loving way in a resurrection somewhere. Everyone is going to get a good chance at salvation. So, there are some pretty evil people on this earth, right? I mean, there are some people who think evil continually. And all that is in their mind is greed and jealousy and hate and murder. And all those evil things. That's just the way their minds work. And you don't want to be around people like that. But it's rampant, like it was in the days of Noah. All you have to do is act a little upset in traffic, and there's a lot of people that have a gun right there. They're ready to shoot you or run you over or whatever. That's just the mindset that they have. Ship on their shoulder. But he says, "Don't. we're not to be that way. Love our enemies. Now, love is applying God's law to them. Love is also includes an emotion. We're not to hate. Now, you can't always like, but you're not to hate. Some people, and what they do and the way they act is really, really hard to like. We need to be as likable as possible without compromising what we believe and know. But sometimes you can't be likable enough to overcome that because what you believe about God and about your life and what needs to be done is going to offend people just because it is about God. And you can't change that and you can't change what you do or the way you act and react because they don't like it. They don't like the month we keep Passover. They don't like us keeping the Sabbath. They don't like us not eating pigs or whatever. They don't like God. So we can't compromise those things. But at the same time, we need to love them. God loves everybody. He brings, well, he he says on down here another comment about that himself. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. There's a lot of people in our government today, our governments, who hate us and are going to try to kill us. We need to pray that God will someday put them in his kingdom, give them a chance to repent of all their rotten, wretched 
liberal attitudes and make them part of his kingdom. But there's going to have to be an awful lot of changing before they're ready for that. Probably death and resurrection and realizing, ooh, there's somebody bigger than me. I think I better pay attention here. It's going to take that. Verse 45, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. He's that way, and he wants you to be like him. Then he gives an example. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He is willing to work with anybody, anywhere, anytime, good or bad. Now, he tells us, don't cozy up to the world. Don't make them a part of your life because they'll lead you astray. Or like with uh, in the Old Testament, don't for the kings, don't multiply wives to yourself because they'll lead you to worship false gods. We don't do those things. But even though there are wicked people around us and we're not to fellowship with them in a way that could allow us to be pulled away, we're still not to put them down, put them out, hate them. Now, Christ did at times eat with the publicans, ate with sinners, mingled among them to some degree. But they weren't people that he hung out with hour after hour, day after day, and night after night. Nor does he want us to do the same. Can we be friendly with people out in the world? Yes. Could we have dinner with them over business or, or a beer with them over being neighbors or something once in a while? Sure. But we can't hang out with them all the time because the worldly attitudes will begin to affect us. So we don't hate them. We don't mistreat them. We're nice to them. Um, but realize that God gives his blessing to everybody. Now, we are trying to be just. We're trying to be his servants. But when it does rain here, does it stop at our fence and not go over to the neighbors? No, it comes on through and gets us all. God doesn't make any difference on whether you and I are having a good day or a bad day or whether our neighbors are bad or good. He just lets it rain where it's going to rain. Now, he's going to change some of that in the future when he gives his people who will obey him special blessings. But he's not going to hate the unjust. He's going to use us to hopefully help the unjust become just. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Don't even the publicans do that. It's easy to like or love somebody that likes or loves you. That comes pretty easy and it's pretty natural. And generally when people say, well, let's, let's invite somebody over for dinner. Well, first of all, you'll probably think of those you like the best or that you're kin to or whatever. But he says, love them which are, are uh, where was I up here? If you love them which love you, what's the big deal there? That's, that comes easy. Well, what about the ones that don't? 
Well, you're supposed to make some time for them too. And learn to love them. That's hard to do. But you've got to make an effort to learn to love them. Now, you'll always have some that you're closer to than others. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's quite clear that John was clo- uh, that Christ was closer to John than any of the other disciples. They had personalities that were more alike, and John John spoke of love and had a loving attitude more than any of the others did. And Christ responded to that as a human being. So he spent time with all of them, but they didn't all, when he leaned against the tree, come and lay their head on his chest. But John would, and there wasn't anything wrong with that relationship. It wasn't weird or queer in any way. They just had a closeness, as did David and Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, uh, David was not a homosexual. I think we could all probably agree on that. But he and Jonathan, he says, had a love or an affection for each other that was even closer than a man would have with a woman. Hard to imagine, but that's the kind of relationship they had, and it was an honorable and pure relationship. Nothing weird or queer about it. So, yeah, somebody that you have an affinity for, it's easy. But you need to make the effort with others and try to get along as best as you can. Love the ones that don't care much for you. Verse 47, he confirms it more. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Yeah, they'll wave at and shake hands with uh, their friends, but their enemies they won't. Sometimes I kind of have tended to ignore some of those here who are my enemies and making all kinds of accusations against me. And sort of in my mind pretend they're not there, lest I be upset or frustrated by it. So I just kind of block it out of my mind. But maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I should be waving at them when they go by, you know. Salute them too. I wave at you, why not wave at them? Uh, I like waving at you. But it isn't natural for me want to wave at somebody who's lying and stealing and, and uh, bearing false witness and accusing me of stuff I didn't do. That doesn't come easy. So I guess I'm correcting myself here. Uh, this isn't all about you, and I'm not just preaching at you and trying to get you to straighten up. I have to, too. It's for all of us. Verse 48 then, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. He always has the right response. He always has love in his heart and in his mind, and he treats us with love. Even when he has to punish us, chasten us, put us through a trial or a trouble, or put us through what Job had to go through so that Job might learn something that Job didn't know yet. Now that was pretty serious stuff there. When all your kids are dead, your flocks and herds are gone, uh, you got boils all over your body and you're about to die and almost wishing you could, and your wife says, why don't you? Uh, that's a tough one. But he had something 
God wanted him to learn and to know. And God, in love, put him through that so that when Job learned it, accepted it, and God took away Satan and his influence, Job was better off than he had been before. If that's at all possible, but that's what God said. He gave him more than he'd had before once he learned his lesson. So God is always love. And when tough things happen, it's because God loves us. And your life and mine is not time and chance. I know Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, time and chance happens to them all. But he is, in that book, referring to life in general. He's not referring to converted people. He's referring to mankind on the earth, and all kinds of things happen. But once he calls us and selects us out of this world and justifies us, sets us aside for salvation, he counts the hair on our head. He's very, very solicitous of you and me. We, are, we have his attention at all times, in other words. He even knows when the sparrows fall to the ground. So how much more does he pay attention to those his called out ones that he wants to spend eternity with? He is very, very much aware of everything that happens in your life and mine. Nothing escapes him. He knows every thought that goes through our heads. He knows everything we do with our hands or feet. And he knows when he needs to save us from death. He knows when he needs to take care of whatever it is. And then he sees something about to happen bad. And he chooses to go ahead and let it happen that we might learn from it. Or he chooses to stop it. Now, I've had some pretty serious things happen to me at times in my years of life. And I've come that close to death more times than I can sit here and think about and count. But God has not allowed any of those things to happen to date. He might tonight or tomorrow. I don't know. It's up to Him. But I know many times where He saved me when I would have surely died. One time was a head-on plane wreck that almost happened over the Bahamas. And the wheel came back and the plane jumped and one went right underneath us. And the pilot said, it was just my wife and I in the plane with the pilot. He says, I didn't do that. I didn't do a thing. It just jumped. Scared him half to death. He finally managed to get the plane landed back at Nassau. And he didn't even say thank you or goodbye. He says, I gotta have a drink. <laughs> Straight to the bar he went. <laughs> I'll see ya. <clears throat> that was one of those times. You've seen it in automobiles in different ways. Uh, we've, we've all had some pretty close narrow escapes. And sometimes God lets some of those things happen, and we should be thinking, what do I need to learn from this? Is God chastening? Why did he allow this to happen? 
And then sometimes we have a close call and nothing happens and we thank Him for loving us. But always thank Him. Always thank Him when things go wrong and get right. Because God's there. He is with us. And if something bad is allowed to happen, He did it for His purposes. I mean, we can wonder. Somebody comes into the church... I've seen things like this happen. They come into the church, they're baptized. Three months later, they're in a head-on collision and die. Why? Could God have prevented that accident? Yep. Why didn't he? I really don't know. I have no way of knowing why he would allow that to happen. But I do know his goal is, whoever that person was, to have them in his kingdom. Otherwise, he would not have revealed the truth to them and brought them to the place of repentance and had them baptized and hands laid on and receive his spirit if he did not intend them to be in his kingdom. Because no man can go through that process unless the spirit of the Father draws him. So that is unquestionable. I can look at it and say, wow, that doesn't seem right. That, wow, how does that, how does that compute? I don't understand that. But I do know that his purpose is to have that king person in his kingdom. Maybe in that three months he overcame something, or during his repentance time, and since then, maybe he did enough that God said, you're in. I don't know. Or maybe he wasn't truly converted, and he'll be in the great white throne judgment. I don't know. But I tell myself often, Daryl, you may not know what God is doing, but God knows what God is doing. And if I see something that perplexes me, or I think I don't understand that, then my reaction is, hopefully, and most of the time, I don't know what you're doing. Show me if I need to understand. But I know you know what you're doing, so I'm not worried about it. In other words, we've got to trust God and believe God and know that everything He does is for the good because all things work together for good to those who love God and keep His commandments. So whatever it is that happens, it may seem bad to us, but God has a good purpose in mind. Trust Him. Trust Him. Why do I have the problems I have today? Why is this sickness here? Why is this there? Why did something happen? I don't know. God does. And He loves me with all His heart. That's all I need to know. And I need to respond to Him and not be frustrated, embittered, uh, depressed, feeling sorry for myself and having pity parties, self-centeredness and self-righteousness is what that is. No, don't let yourself go there. Be thankful to God in heaven, whatever state you find yourself in. Doesn't matter what it is. 
when Paul was floating around in the Mediterranean after a shipwreck with ten, eight or nine or ten foot waves. Thank you, Father. You ready for that one? <laughs> I not too long ago turned a four-wheeler over and did my best, I guess, to kill myself. And there I was laying on the ground in the thing, and I said, Thank you, Father, that I'm alive. I'm hurting, but I'm alive. So I could thank Him for that. Now, I could have died just as easily as not. Just as easily as not. But I think God was there, and He isn't done with me yet, and I haven't overcome enough to be in His kingdom if I did die, and therefore I need to live longer so I can become what I need to be. This is the way I have to look at it. Because we belong to Him. Live, die, sick, crippled, it doesn't matter. We belong to Him as His servants. And whatever He lets happen to us, we need to say, thank you, Father, I know this is for my good. Paul got snake bit. Oh, okay. Flipped it in the fire and trusted that whatever happened as a result of that snake bite was God's purpose and will. What was God's purpose and will? Maybe partly to test Paul and see if he would trust his father but probably more for all those shipwrecked people who are trying to haul him to Rome as a testimony that God's bigger than snakes. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. I wasn't there. And I might have leaned back from the fire myself when the snake went in, afraid he'd come out and bite me. We just don't know. So when things happen, he says, count it all joy. Sometimes that is not easy. It doesn't come easy. Sometimes it takes a while. We have to work through our attitudes and our minds and our emotions to get to the point we can say, Thank you, Father. I'll count this as joy because I know I'm going to learn something from it that will help get me closer to your kingdom. Because that's God's whole intent and purpose is to get you there whatever you have to go through. Now, are you going to accept that thankfully or be depressed and discouraged with how things are? He says, don't do that. Don't go there. Whatever tribulations, trials, and troubles you have, count them as joy. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You have to accept that He loves you. Okay? That's what it's all about. Well, if He loves me, why did He let this happen? <laughs> so He can love you eternally. Not just physically for a few years, but eternally. His, his perspective is a lot further out than ours tends to be. And his people perish for lack of vision. We need to see beyond our feelings and our emotions and poor, poor, pitiful me to what he's working out in us and doing it in the way that he sees fit and that will work out the best. What about that poor guy who was not really converted at all 
who couldn't walk and laid by the pool every day hoping he'd be healed. And when he was, then they wanted to know, well, what about this guy? Who sinned, him or his parents? If he's laying there and can't get up, there must be some sin involved. All those years, what was he, 40 years old, something like that? All that time he laid there and could not get up off the ground. And God said, oh, this was just for the glory of God, that others might see that God can heal. He went through 40 years of absolute misery so that somebody might learn something about God. God looks in the long term. You and I think about how I feel right now and feel sorry for ourselves. No. Selfishness is what feeling sorry for yourself is all about. It's vanity, it's ego, selfishness, which is idolatry. So when we let ourselves get into a pity party, we are committing idolatry, the first commandment. Can we see that? I'm putting the way I feel and my condition and my poor, poor, pitiful me ahead of God and His purposes and what He's working out with me. Therefore, I'm putting how I feel ahead of what God is doing. And when you put anything ahead of God, even your feelings, that is idolatry. You don't have to be falling down on your knees before a leering idol to commit idolatry. All you have to do is put yourself ahead of God in any way, and that's idolatry. The first commandment, and the greatest. Now, we're a little early, but that's enough. Let's think about those things. Because it's all about our attitude, it's all about our perspective, it's all about our trust in God, so that we keep these things simple. We just do as God does and as God thinks, we need to be that same way. And he always acts in love. And he tells us in Hebrews 12, if you don't chasten your children, you don't love them. Because you are only concerned for how they feel at the moment. Are they happy? Are they smiling? Are they loving you're not concerned about how they'll act when they're 14, 15, 16, or 40. You're not thinking that far ahead. You're thinking of your comfort. And you're thinking of, well, I don't want to hurt the poor thing. No, God says, chasten them or you don't love them. He chastens us because He loves us. He wants us to be what we ought to be. And if we're not what we ought to be, he makes it hurt in some way. When you say, I love them too much to discipline them, you're saying, ultimately, I don't love them. Because you're letting them grow up to be spoiled and selfish and get their own way and use and abuse and manipulate you to get their way. And then they go through their life selfishly abusing and manipulating others and their mates later on and whatever, selfishly to get their way. And that makes for unhappy human beings, both in them and the ones they're around. 
So you're doing them a great disservice if you don't chasten them and make them do what they need to do. Your absolute God-bound responsibility, if you have children, is to raise them the way they ought to be and to act the way they ought to act and to be kind and sharing and loving to everybody. Because that's what God just told us we should be. And he is doing whatever he has to do, George without any legs, to get us where he wants us, whatever it means. That's what he's doing. Might seem harsh. Might seem harsh. Seems harsh to George. Seems harsh to me. But God has a purpose. Maybe his purpose is to heal George and have him walking around here one of these days as an example of the church. As a sign and a wonder. Now when you can't get from here to the bathroom, it's hard to think in those terms. But we have to. And when our children want to disobey or get their way or manipulate us, we can't allow it to happen. We have to do whatever is necessary to cause them to do what they should do. And people, parents say, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. Convince a kid of that if you can, because he thinks it hurts him worse. Now, it may hurt you emotionally, and you don't like to cause pain to your children, But if that child is going to be causing pain to other people throughout its life and pain to itself, you're not doing it any favors by letting it get away with stuff today. Because that will become a habit and that's the way they'll be. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree. So God is working with you and me as babes in Christ to get us to grow straight. And sometimes... We go through a lot of difficulties to keep us propped up straight. Okay, I said that's enough, so let's quit.